The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Doc, I got my confidence back. You know what did it for me? Reading the Eureka Bulletin. You know, I'm suddenly sure of what good journalism should be, because this is one of the lousiest papers I've ever seen. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 20th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be We'll talk about one of the lousiest papers I've ever seen. (laughs) This year's top prize goes to the New York Times, whose so-called op-ed by an anonymous insider Trump official has all the makings of the false estate, which is how I find myself referring to our former fourth estate. So on today's show, I shall attempt to go through this editorial in an effort to illustrate just how deeply sinister this all is. And we'll do that right after we remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, and of course, all of our archive broadcasts. Now, I know our first segment today is going to be unusually long, because I really feel it necessary to go through this New York Times op-ed, so it's so-called, in detail. This editorial, from start to end, is offensive. I mean, it's amazing what it admits. It starts with the word opinion, and then begins the headline, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Now, I got a question. Is making an admission of this sort an opinion? Is it just the writer's opinion that he or she is part of a resistance? I don't think you can reasonably make that argument. You know, I consider this so-called op-ed to be an unsigned confession of criminal activity. It is not an opinion to, to admit to such fraud on such a national scale. It is what it is, a blatant admission of corruption and corrupt activities, carried on not by Donald Trump, but against Donald Trump. The headline continues, I work for the president, but like-minded colleagues and I have vowed to thwart parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. Wow. Translation, the president and those who voted for him think I'm working for them and their agenda, but I'm making sure that my agenda is a priority. Unbelievable. Then the Times prefaces the editorial with this. The Times today is taking the rare step of publishing an anonymous op-ed essay. We have done so at the request of the author, a senior official in the Trump administration, whose identity is known to us and whose job would be jeopardized by its disclosure. We believe publishing this essay anonymously is the only way to deliver an important perspective to our readers. Well, I want to know why you didn't call the cops. President Trump is facing a test to his presidency unlike any faced by a modern American leader, begins the editorial. 
The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I am one of them. Well, you know what? Then you should be in jail. This is no minor or trivial admission. I was utterly stunned when I read this confession. Again, this is not an opinion. But we believe our first duty is to this country. So that's why they oppose Donald Trump's America First policy. That makes sense. And the president continues to act in a manner, how and what, they don't say, that is detrimental to the health of our republic. That is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he's out of office. Holy smokes. You know, translation, Trump was elected and we don't care. Our agenda is what matters. Even if Trump wins the next election, we'll, we'll keep up our criminal behavior. I mean, this is another admission of guilt and of sort of treasonous behavior. Until you can convince me that thwarting means using persuasion to convince the president to change his direction on some policy, well, that's one thing. And if, you did, if that was what you meant, then both the anonymous accusation and the anonymous evidence wouldn't be necessary, would it? And in fact, if that was the case, then the president would rightly be the one to take credit for being persuaded along the better path, wouldn't he? But in the vacuum of information, anonymous everything, and ad hominem, I have to conclude that the word thwart refers to unethical and criminal action. Why hide behind a curtain? Now we come to the bottom line, and what a diatribe against Trump this really is. Get this, quote, the root of the problem is the president's amorality. Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored by any discernible first principles that guide his decision making. Wow. Translation, so our disagreement with the president's ideology is the issue. Trump's lack of discernible first principles is a direct cause of our own failure and ignorance in being able to discern them. And if amorality is an issue, then what about the immorality of the writer's position? This whole editorial is an immoral diatribe. A bunch of liars and crooks manufacturing more lies to justify their criminality. To say that anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to principles is sure make-believe and utterly false. Many people who have worked with Trump say exactly the opposite. Although he was elected as Republican, the president shows little affinity for ideals long espoused by conservative, free minds, free markets, and free people. At best, he has invoked these ideals in scripted settings. At worst, he has attacked them outright. So what? In addition to his mass marketing of the notion that the press is the enemy of the people, it is <laughs> the notion. President Trump's impulses are generally anti-trade. No tariffs, no barriers. That would, that's the way it should be. And no subsidies. And anti-democratic. I mean, anti-democratic are the people who are thwarting the agenda of the elected president in favor of their non-elected steady-state agenda. It's ridiculous. Don't get me wrong, says the writer, who is now a singular person. Well, how can I? I don't even know who the hell you are. I can't get you wrong. But I know what you are. You're wrong. <laughs> and the writer says there are bright spots in the near-ceaseless negative coverage of the administration 
that are failed to capture, effective deregulation, historic tax reform, a more robust military, and more. Well, imagine that, all from an amoral president. Ah, no, but it's not the president who's, who's responsible for all these great decisions. It's them, because, hey, these successes have come despite, not because of the president's leadership style, which is impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective, end quote. Well, that's got nothing to do with success of a policy. Nobody who's, who's the recipient of a policy a million miles away knows what Trump is like sitting in the, in the West Wing of the White House. <laughs> the successes result from taking the correct action. So this is not a comment about Trump, but a universal truth. After all, a president with the same leadership style as Trump, or with even the desired leadership style of the writer, whatever that anonymous quality might be, would have failed if the incorrect left-wing action were taken. Moreover, it's totally clear to me that Trump's leadership style is as guided and consistent as his bigger agenda. This, this guy just doesn't get it, the writer. doesn't understand it. Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants, and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. Well, surely... There are at least a few vague actual examples you might offer us. Off-topic? Like what? Repetitive rants? Such as? Surely these simple generic examples do not have to be as anonymous as the writer, do they? And all of these things they're saying, I mean, this is totally contrary to any of my own personal observations of Trump and to the observations of others who have actually met with Trump in person, who've talked to him, like, like Candace Owens that we played on the show a few weeks ago. Quote, there is literally no telling whether he might change his mind from one minute to the next. A top official complained to me recently. So he's writing in the singular now. Exasperated by an Oval Office meeting at which the president flip-flopped on a major policy decision he'd made only a week earlier. Again, no example. If it was a major decision, why not give us a hint of what it was about? But so what, even so, if the president changed his mind? The, the irony is, I've never had a problem predicting what Trump would do. How come you have the problem and you're right in the White House? I mean, once I realized what his agenda was and that he was steadfastly committed to his stated agenda and that everything he was doing was very consistent to me, I mean, what's your problem? The erratic behavior would be more concerning if it weren't for, oh boy, unsung heroes in and around the White House. Some of his aides have been cast as villains by the media, but in private they have gone to great lengths to keep bad decisions contained in the West Wing, though they are clearly not always successful. This, this just is BS piled on BS piled on BS. And it's virtue signaling, for heaven's sakes, on the part of the writers. Hey, we are the heroes, not Trump. We're saving the nation from Donald Trump. Yay! Wow. It may be cold comfort in this chaotic era, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. <laughs> you know who the adult is? It's Donald Trump. I mean, does writing an anonymous confession like this one, without a single fact or referent in it, sound like something an adult would do? We fully recognize what's happening, and we're trying to do what's right, even when Donald Trump won't. People who are doing what's right don't have to hide behind shields of anonymity, and never once give us an example of anything they've done that's right. I mean, this, this chaotic era, by the way, like all chaos, is a phenomenon of the left. 
Take foreign policy, they write. In public and private, President Trump shows a preference for autocrats and dictators such as President Vladimir Putin of Russia and North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un and displays little genuine appreciation for the ties that bind us to allied, like-minded nations. We'll talk about a political comment, one that I've heard literally made and we've commented on, on the show before. This is politics and this is completely orchestrated. Just consider some of the headlines I reviewed a couple weeks ago from the Epoch Times. Every article reported the facts and then praised Trump for being one of the few who does understand international relations, who's actually improving the world situation. And according to my brief memory, at least, and I don't have a good memory, but didn't Trump once threaten to annihilate North Korea if that country didn't clean up its act? I mean, if that's preferential treatment, this writer's out of his mind. Astute observers have noted, though, that the rest of the administration is operating on another track, one where countries like Russia are called out for meddling and punished accordingly, and where allies around the world are engaged as peers rather than ridiculed as rivals. Yes, allies around the world are economic rivals. They're not military rivals, they're economic rivals. Russia's a military rival, as well as being an economic rival. It deserves little different attention. On Russia, for instance, the president was reluctant to expel so many of Mr. Putin's spies as punishment for the poisoning of a former Russian spy in Britain. He complained for weeks about senior staff members letting him get boxed into further confrontation with Russia, and he expressed frustration that the United States continued to impose sanctions on the country for its malign behavior. But his national security team knew better. Such actions had to be taken to hold Moscow accountable. Well, here again, we have, no, we have evidence that the administration has been thwarting Trump's attempts to cool international tensions, including fears of war, and actually instigating further confrontations with Russia. This isn't the work of the so-called deep state, says the editorial. It's the work of the steady state. <laughs> there we go again. Adjectives, adjectives. Shallow state, unsteady state. It's just a state, for heaven's sakes. Steady versus deep are meaningless distinctions. I mean, where do individuals and elected governments come into play? A steady state, by definition, would never allow for democratic choices to unsteady the state in favor of freedom, let's say. Given the instability many witnessed, again, no examples either of the instability or of any witnesses, and, and these are not insignificant or unimportant exclusions that I'm citing here, even in an anonymous statement. Quote, there were... Early whispers within the cabinet of, of invoking the 25th Amendment, which would start a complex process for removing the president. But no one wanted to pre precipitate a constitutional crisis. So we will do what we can to steer the administration in the right direction until one way or another it's over. So now it's we, he's writing in a plural, they, they, it, whoever. So this is a person or group determined to overthrow an elected government to establish a steady state irrespective of what happens in the future. As long as Trump's there, they're going to be doing this. That's what I'm hearing. If that isn't treason of a sort, I don't know what is. The bigger concern is not what Mr. Trump has done to the presidency, but rather that what we as a nation have allowed him to do to us. We have sunk low with him and allowed our discourse to be stripped of civility. You know, I've rarely witnessed anything more uncivilized in the realm of discourse than the publication of this confession posing as some kind of journalism. This is, this is disgusting. 
Senator John McCain put it best in his farewell letter. All Americans should heed his words and break free of the tribalism trap with the high aim of uniting <laughs> uniting another tribe uh, through our shared values and love of this great nation. We may no longer have Senator McCain, but we will always have his example, a lodestar for restoring honor to public life in our national dialogue. I don't know what dialogue he's talking about, the one that the left is shutting down at every opportunity, the free speech fascism going on campuses across the continent, this one-sided monologue coming from the media. That's not a dialogue, that's a monologue. There's a quiet resistance within the administration of people choosing to put country first, you know, as opposed to, again, Trump putting America first. But the real difference will be made by everyday citizens rising above politics. Wow, talk about a screaming card, a calling card. What utter diatribe and garbage. You cannot be political or participate in a political process by, quote, rising above politics. Come on. What's being admitted to here is that the writer is confessing that the political option appears close to him right now, given Trump's political popularity, okay? So in order to defeat that political popularity, we must now all rise above the very means necessary to either support and oppose those in government. In other words, we'll continue doing illegal things in Trump's office and remove documents because um, that's how we're going to have to do it because he's so popular, you know? reaching across the aisle and resolving to shed the labels in favor of a single one, Americans. Resolving to shed labels is the battle cry of all totalitarians, everyone on the left, because they don't want to recognize that there is a left and right. They want to depolarize the democratic process. That kind of, you know, kills the energy of democracy. It's the same way as depolarizing a battery would make it ineffective. It's dead, Jim. <laughs> the battery of democracy, that is. The writer is a senior official in the Trump administration, concludes the confession. I would say more, but I'll just restrain myself for now. So there you have it. Anonymous evidence, anonymous examples. It's, it's a nothing written by a nothing. The implications of this editorial are manifest. I mean, through anonymity, the New York Times ha has created an increased mistrust and suspicion within the White House, hoping to create an environment where no one can trust anyone and create more dysfunction. That's the goal. You know, and you leave the guilt or innocence of untrustworthy White House staff up to speculation. Everybody accuses everybody else. All this while blaming their immorality on Trump's amorality. Creating doubt and, and, and speculation is one of the main objectives of this despicable op-ed. But I, for one, have no doubt about the immorality of the New York Times. This so-called op-ed doesn't even rate as hearsay, since no facts were heard and nothing was really said. It's all floating abstractions, unattached to anything in reality or that you could even consider reasonable. As if to mirror the lack of journalistic or moral integrity displayed by the New York Times, we now turn 
to my lo- own local neighborhood where on CJBK AM 1290 radio, the station simulcasts CTV television news. And in this upcoming panel discussion, we hear show host Todd Vander Hayden consult three utterly contemptuous of Trump correspondents from Washington, all offering their own repetitive and non-informative insight into Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, Trump in the White House. It all comes as a hunt is still underway for the author of a scathing op-ed that was published in the New York Times last week. Let's bring in our Angle on America panelists. We've got Steve Farnsworth joining us. We've got Ryan Williams joining us, Corey Crowley as well, standing by. All of them coming to us from the Washington, D.C. area. Corey, let me start with you. Uh, First of all, your take on fear. I know it just came out, but certainly this is not good news for this White House. Well, not at all, Todd. And, and here we go. It's it's more recounting, more corroboration of the same things we've been hearing about this president and his campaign forever. We know it's dysfunctional uh, from the very beginning. How many campaign managers, how many transition directors, how many chiefs of staff and other cabinet officials has he already been through? I don't think that anybody disbelieves what's in here. Now, maybe there's some uh, dispute of certain facts. And I think a lot of the people that are coming out and disputing them from within his administration are doing it to save face. This president has said he wants libel laws changed in this country to protect himself and other elected officials from bad things being said about them. Uh, So there's no doubt that if he found out that you had said something bad about him, even if true to anyone in the public, especially the media, that he would have your head on a chopping block. Uh, What about you, Steve? What do you make about this book? Uh, Does it have an impact or not on the Trump presidency? Well, really what this book does, above all, is confirm what other people have said about this Trump presidency. You're looking at uh, former secretaries of state, former chiefs of staff, former leaders in the campaign, all of whom say that Donald Trump is really not focused on issues. He really doesn't have an attention span. He really does tend towards the recklessness. That's what we have heard from day one. When Trump first was a campaign and talked about how Mexicans were rapists, um, this was not a man who was a thoughtful, judicious policymaker. And this confirms all of that. Some of the denials that are being made. Um, when we had the uh, story of Deep Throat during the Watergate scandal, where the source was actually a top official at the FBI, he denied it publicly at the time. And it was only decades later that the public learned the truth. Uh, These people who think that they are entitled to challenge the president in this way by taking documents away from him and trying to change the subject uh, really uh, may not be publicly known for a while. But there's a lot of evidence in this book to suggest that Donald Trump is not focusing on this job in a way that most people would consider very responsible. Ryan, I'm wondering whether you think there's anything new, whether it's surprising or whether it's just kind of more of the same or sort of as bad as you thought it was, it's even worse. I think it confirms other reporting we've heard about this administration and how this president acts in office. There's some new details, the removing of the trade deal from the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. So there's new details, but this overall idea that this is a dysfunctional White House and that Donald Trump is pretty much a disaster is not new at all. We've heard about this now for the entirety of his presidency, for the for the campaign. I mean, it's been two years of this. So it's not surprising to anybody who has followed this closely. I just I don't think it I think it's an interesting read, but I don't think it is going to have a huge impact on changing the the course of things. Um, Trump is who he is. And. His, his issues are known at this point, and people either believe it or they don't.
right. Now, what about the mole inside the White House and this notion that there's kind of a resistance going on uh, within the administration and there's a hunt for this person trying to identify them? Trump has basically said it's uh, treasonous. This person is a traitor. There's talk about having his top people take lie detector tests and on and on it goes. Uh, Corey, your take on what that actually means. Now, I do think that this person should have come forward. They should say who they are and uh, they should make this case known with their name on it to remove any of this doubt and any of this uh, attack line that Donald Trump can use about them that, you know, everybody's an unnamed source and a secret leaker. It kind of plays right into his hand. And uh, we know that plays into his hand because he himself has been his own uh, secret leaker. There are plenty of reporters who've said that they've caught Donald Trump calling them over the years and decades uh, trying to leak juice on himself just to get himself in the news. So uh, it's nothing new to him. But I'll say this. It seems that anybody Donald Trump brings into his administration, because don't forget, these aren't bureaucrats or people that Obama put in office. These are people Donald Trump hired to work for him and appointed to positions. And if they're getting that close to him after believing him in enough him in him enough to come to work there, that they're then turning on him and writing these kinds of op-eds, then the situation's got to be far worse than any of us can even imagine. Well, well there is this counter narrative as well, Steve. You know, hold on a second. I mean, these people are undermining American democracy. This man was, whether you like him or not, elected president. And here they are working actively or passively to stop his agenda. Yeah, and I think that that's a fair point. I think that uh, a president has a right to be able to trust the people working around him. And uh, it seems perfectly reasonable to me that Donald Trump would try to figure out who can and cannot be trusted. It is a president who already starts with a relatively high level of paranoia, um, but that paranoia has gotten higher as a result of this. Uh, as uh, as Corey mentioned a moment ago, it seems to me that the best scenario here would be for this person, whoever it might be, and I'm convinced that the New York Times would not have allowed this uh, anonymous op-ed to have been written unless it was somebody very high up in this administration uh, to claim this anonymity and to claim this inside view. Uh, I think they should come public. I think they should resign. And I think they should say exactly what's on their minds with the name attached. And uh, Donald Trump is really not going to be able to make the case that uh, that uh, you have a, a treason claim when you're talking about somebody who's just simply speaking their mind. Criticizing a president is not treasonous. We figured that out 200 years ago in this country. Ryan, let me give you a scenario. You're Donald Trump. What do you do with this news? That there's somebody, or more than one, as it seems to be, working against you within your administration. Do you clear the decks? Do you get rid of people? What do you do? Well, what he should do is focus on something else and stop harping on this. He, can, he keeps tweeting about treason and, and leakers. He can't let this go. He should launch a, a private, you know, kind of behind-the-scenes investigation to figure out who it is and to figure out who else he can't trust in the administration. But he should stop talking about it publicly. All it does is call more attention to the dysfunction and, and recklessness of this administration that, that people are running around behind his back pulling documents off uh, the desk, as we, we read in the Woodward book, and other staff are writing op-eds about how they're all trying to stop him from doing something crazy. He should stop calling attention to this. He should focus on being president, focus on storm relief, focus on everything else that's going on in the country right now, and not obsess over this publicly, but he can't do that. He just gets hung up on things. He can't internalize anything, and I'm sure he'll keep talking about this. There'll be more reporting on it, and will be a further distraction from the, for the administration to, to deal with. Fear the fourth estate, <laughs> not Trump in the White House. I mean, that was utterly despicable commentary and reporting, I'm sorry to say. This was a great example 
of the extreme disservice being foisted on the public by the fourth estate, the steady drone of the Trump derangement syndrome, complete with all of its accompanying characteristics, which, which we shall now wade through in a similar fashion to what we just did with the New York Times. Now, of course, this is about Bob Woodward's book, Fear, Trump in the White House. I mean, even the, the choice of that word, fear, is what this is all about. That's all they want you to see, fear. <laughs> That's about as basic as you can get. Washington correspondence Corey Crowley says that Bob Woodward's book is more recounting, more corroboration, all of the same things we've been hearing about this president and his campaign forever. You know, in other words, BS. We know it's dysfunctional, he says. Well, clearly dysfunctional thanks to the dysfunctional staff that's sabotaging Trump behind his back. Why aren't they the ones being blamed? From the very beginning, how many campaign managers, transition directors, chiefs of staff, and other cabinet officials has he already been through? Well, of course, this is a whole different issue from people taking things off his desk and the insiders working. But, okay, let's change the subject. I don't know. How many? Why were they dismissed? Who? What? What about? When? From the very beginning? That means that the BS about Trump's presidential abilities began even before Trump had an opportunity to prove his critics right or wrong. It also means that there's nothing new to see here now, except the extreme degree to which the false estate will go in its mindless denunciations of Trump. I haven't heard a single fact or insight that would lead me to believe anything I heard from these people. And he says, maybe there's some dispute of certain facts, like what, he doesn't say. And I think that a lot of people are coming out and disputing them from within his administration are doing it to save face. So in other words, he's arguing that there are no truths. Disputing lies is only done to save face. Meanwhile, the writers of the New York Times editorial don't try to save face, they hide their faces. You see a sort of a double standard here? Don't forget that this president has said that he wants libel laws changed in this country to protect himself and other elected officials from bad things being said about them. Well, that's BS, totally false. Trump is talking about libel, which has never had anything to do with opinion. So there is no doubt that if he found out if you had said something bad about him, even if true, to anyone in the public, especially the media, he would have your head on a chopping block. Well, that's an ad hominem. No doubt if. You know, this is all speculation about things that never happened regarding events and circumstances completely undefined. No examples, not even make-believe ones. That's how much of a floating abstraction this whole discussion and commentary has become. Steve Farnsworth adds, What this book does above all is confirm what other people have said about the Trump presidency. You're looking at former secretaries of state, former chiefs of staff, former leaders in his campaign, all of whom say Donald Trump is not really focused on issues. He really doesn't have an attention span. He really does tend towards recklessness. That's what we have heard from day one, when Trump first campaigned and talked about how Mexicans were rapists. This was not a man who was a thoughtful, judicious policymaker. This confirms all of that. Some of the denials being made when we had a story of deep throat during the Watergate scandal where the source was actually a top official of the FBI. He denied it publicly at the time. <laughs> now here's Farnsworth saying he denied it. Who denied it? He's implicating Trump, but meaning Nixon, because this is referring to another event, and comparing Nixon's cover-up of a break-in at Watergate to Trump's attention span and focus on issues is beyond the pale. 
Denying or refuting a lie and denying the truth are two entirely different things, aren't they? To suggest otherwise is to treat evil and good with equivalence, which is what they are doing. These people who think that they are entitled to challenge the president in this way by taking documents away from him and trying to change the subject really may not be publicly known for a while. But there's a lot of evidence in this book to suggest that Donald Trump is not focusing on his job in a way that most people would consider very responsible. End quote. Like who? Obviously his political opponents. Who else? Hello? This is pure politics attempting to disguise itself as journalism. It doesn't even rate yellow journalism. Ryan Williams continues, I think it confirms other reporting we've heard from this administration and how this president acts in office. So there's new details with this overall idea that this is a dysfunctional White House and that Donald Trump is pretty much a disaster is not new at all. Well, again, this is telling. Trump was considered a disaster from minute one, as Salim Mansour pointed out last week. He was never even given a microsecond to prove himself. The attacks and the ad hominems were immediate. Trump never even got his 100-day grace period that's given to every other president. So if it's not new as having been discovered in some way recently, then it's contrived to say that Trump is pretty much a disaster because they've been saying that, as they said, since day one. So what's new here? Nothing. Now turning back to the conversation about the New York Times confession, Corey Crowley says, I do think that the person should come forward, they should say who they are, and they should make this case known with their name on it to remove any of this doubt and this attack line that Donald Trump can use about them. I, I don't get that kind of thinking. Trump holds the upper hand with or without the anonymity of the criminals in question here. I haven't heard anything about Trump that would concern me. I've heard a lot about the admissions of the New York Times letter writer that concerns me greatly. Everyone's an unnamed source, and the secret leaker kind of plays into Trump's hands. We know that plays into his hands because he himself has been his own secret leaker there. There are plenty of reporters who've said that they've caught Donald Trump calling them over the years and decades <laughs> trying to leak juice on himself just to get himself in the news. So it's nothing new to him. I mean, this argument's so ridiculous on its face. Trump promoting his own businesses over the years? That's not a leak like this kind of leak. Come on. This is, this is about people making ad hominem accusations against Trump, resorting to physical actions against him by re removing documents, misrepresenting themselves to him, stabbing him behind his back in every way possible. I just can't believe it. But I'll say this. It seems that anybody Donald Trump brings into his administration, because don't forget... These aren't bureaucrats or people Obama put in the office. These are people Donald Trump hired. Then turning on him and writing these kind of op-eds, then the situation has to be far worse than any of us can even imagine. But exactly what is the situation, quote-unquote, outside of this disagreement with Trump? If all you can do is attack the messenger, then you are the situation. Yes, I can sympathize with Trump in this regard because the situation of corruption within the government is worse than one can imagine. And I think it's very difficult for a person like Trump to sort out the wheat from the chaff, even in the people he hires, which is what he's doing by constantly firing the incompetent or those who will not work with him or won't work towards its agenda. That's the whole point. Then host Todd Vander Hayden brings up the counter-narrative. 
That's a fair point, says Steve Farnsworth. I think the president has a right to be able to trust the people working around him, etc. And I thought, wow, he's, he's going on side with the president. But then he says, it's a president who already starts with a relatively high level of paranoia, but that paranoia has gotten higher as a result of this. Hello? <laughs> what? Doesn't paranoia refer to a condition where you keep falsely thinking that people are against you? <laughs> it's not paranoia when they're actually against you. And when they put it in writing that they're actually against you. When they put it in writing that they're actually doing those things behind your back. So Trump's the one who's paranoid? Holy smokes. I, I, as Corey mentioned a moment ago, it seemed to me that the best scenario here would be for this person, whoever it might be, and I'm convinced the New York Times would not have allowed this anonymous op-ed to be written unless it was someone very high up in the administration to claim this anonymity and this inside view. I think they should become public, I think they should resign, and I think they should say exactly what's on their minds with name attached. Donald Trump is not really going to be able to make the case that you have a treason claim when you're talking about someone who's just simply speaking their mind. Criticizing a president is not treasonous. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, man, nobody but you ever suggested it was. That's not what's being talked about here. The treason is in the actions taken, not the criticisms. We figured that out 200 years ago in this country. He says, no, you didn't. You still don't get it. Jeez. Removing documents from the president's desk is not a form of speaking your mind, nor any of the other crimes that were admitted to. Finally, Ryan Williams, in answering what Trump should do, says what he should do is focus on something else. Don't talk about this. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Do a private investigation. Well, Trump's already doing that. But he should stop talking about it publicly. All this does is call more attention to the dysfunction and recklessness of this administration. That people are running around behind his back pulling documents off the desk, as we've read in the Woodward book, and other staff are writing op-eds about how they're all trying to stop him from doing something crazy. Like, something crazy? Like what? Give us an example. I mean, that claim sounds crazy to me. Sounds crazy. People running around behind Trump's back is what the dysfunction is. Those people are the dysfunction. And they must be both removed and prosecuted. Yet Williams speaks of Trump as being the source of the dysfunction. That's Trump derangement syndrome. They're deranging cause and effect. They're, they're, everything's rearranged in their head. I mean, it's unbelievable. He should stop calling attention to this. He should focus on being the president. Give me a break. This is utterly contemptible. All of Trump's detractors are perfectly okay to go on printing their BS and their anonymous stories with anonymous evidence, while Trump himself, they say, must shut the hell up. Mind his own business. Unfreaking believable. Just consider the opening statements of each of those three commentators. I mean, here's Crowley. Bob Woodward's book offers more recounting, more corroboration of all the same things we've been hearing about this president and his campaign forever. Steve Farnsworth, what this book does, above all, is confirm what other people have said about this Trump presidency. Ryan Williams, I think it confirms other reporting we've heard about this administration and how this president acts in office. Talk about carbon copies of carbon copies of carbon copies. All three of them say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way, and all three of them cite none of the specifics that we've been hearing about Trump. 
In effect, each of them is confirming each other's confirmation in their own confirmation. I think we're heading into an unresolvable loop here. <laughs> it's all hearsay without ever actually having heard anything or anything actually having been said other than this hatred expressed towards Trump. Is this hate speech? I don't know. On the returning side of our upcoming bumper, the tide of irrationality will begin to recede as we listen to the voices of Stephen Crowder and Ben Shapiro in conversation about Donald Trump, as heard on this past Sunday's Daily Wire special. And on this side of our upcoming bumper, one last example of a really severe condition of Trump derangement syndrome, with regular guest commentator Laura Babcock, as heard on Tom McConnell's show on September 5th, CJBK AM 1290 here in London. You know, I was reminded of Lily Tomlin on Rowan and Martin's laughing show back in the 70s, who would just talk and talk without ever completing a sentence or actually making a point. <laughs> but that was comedy. And this is, well, I don't even know what to call it anymore. But I think from a from a historical lens, the Woodward book is going to really describe what was going on during this time, and people will probably reference it in future generations. So from that point of view, I think it's damaging to Trump and his brand. And someone in the book compared Trump to uh, the, he has the sort of intelligence of a fifth or sixth grader. So I have a fifth grader, and the process, which is quite normal amongst kids that age, is at first blanket deny. And then as they're confronted with, oh, no, but I actually caught you doing it, or I, or I could check. And once they know that their, their lie is verifiable <laughs> and they can be caught, then suddenly they work themselves towards, you know, first option as well. It's, who cares? I don't care what you're going to do. And then eventually, you know, they own up to it, et cetera, et cetera. So by people who are in grade five, uh, they, they take the path of least resistance. Lying seems easier. Denial seems easier. When they're confronted with the evidence, uh, they, they tend not to like it. They don't want to get the consequences. But eventually that's part of maturing is you sort of learn, hey, that process of, of denying and pretending it didn't happen and then grudgingly admitting to it, all that nonsense, that grade five kind of way of dealing with crisis. Um, that is not something that works in the long term. And that's what people mature out of it. And they realize that what you get the sense of is that Trump hasn't matured out of that way of thinking. And people who are around him who use that strategy, probably, you know, coming from the White House, just deny, deny, deny. They start to look foolish. They start, they eventually they're going to get caught. Uh, the truth comes out eventually. No matter how many times you, you know, wail at the moon that it's not true, if it's true, it'll come out. Uh, so mature people know that, and they govern themselves, and they live their lives with integrity because they know that. You know, it's, it's going to come out. So they can scream all they want. There's been so many stories that they've said weren't true that turned out to be absolutely true in action, in fact. Uh, and I think that we're going to continue to see this kind of denial, this kind of obfuscation on everything. But now that we know it, you know, once you see the trick, you know the trick. And so I don't think that, again, to that soft support uh, and to leaders around the world, I don't think they buy these denials, the, the denials of lost credibility. It just goes back to that boy who cried wolf, right? Maybe the first 15 times people said, okay, well, maybe we're getting it wrong. Maybe the reporters have a bias. Maybe they really don't know what's going on in there. But as things happen based on those stories and they're confirmed, suddenly it's like the boy who cried wolf. And no one, when they hear the fake news thing, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever, this is going to come out and be true anyway. I'm just going to believe it from the get-go. And, and that's bad, of course, for them and for their reputation. And more importantly, for the 
midterms. If people read this book and say there has to be a check on this president's power, he doesn't seem to understand uh, at a high level, he doesn't seem to have object permanence or whatever, um, they're going to vote in the Democrats, say Congress and possibly the Senate, and then that shifts the whole game. So uh, I think the book does have consequence, and I think that the, the lie-deny strategy has gotten old. So you're a comedian. You label yourself a comedian. Everybody yes. knows you as a comedian. But you do see political actors. President Trump's basically a stand-up comic. Most of what he does is political comedy disguised as politics. And what this means is that he crosses lines that you will cross, but people are not sure what to make of it. Are we supposed to take it like comedy, or are we supposed to take it like politics? Yeah. Is, he just being politi is he being politically incorrect as a comedian, or is he just being a jackass? I, I think he's thoughtless. I think there's a big difference. I mean, there's there's no question that I know where the line is and I know how to walk up to it and dance on the line and pull it back. You know, if I cross the line, it's very deliberate. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case with President Donald Trump. I, I genuinely don't think he knows. But I, one thing that I do think is interesting about Donald Trump, because obviously you weren't a big fan of his and in a lot of ways still aren't, and I was not at all during the primaries. In a lot of ways, I'm, I'm still not. I think we're seeing a transition with President Trump that you've seen with a lot of young conservatives who we reach. I think he was a guy who gave the Democrats for most of his life, who really just, he, he was doing business in New York. I don't really think he was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat either. No. I think he was whatever he needed to get his latest structure with his name emblazoned across it, erected. Um, and uh, I think what you're seeing now, though, is he's come in, he thought the left would play ball a little bit, and they've been so vicious, which we've known them to be, they've attacked his family personally, where now he's just, okay, screw you, and he's becoming more conservative. I think we're seeing a genuine transition of him becoming more right-wing, kind of like, I hate to say it, but Ebenezer Scrooge later in life. Everyone can kind of be <laughs> redeemed, where he's like, I got it wrong all these years. I think we're seeing that with President Trump. I do think there's some of that. So I think with Donald Trump, if you were to ask me, are you a Donald Trump fan, I'd probably answer no. But if you were to ask me, do you think that Donald Trump has done a relatively good job as president? I'd probably say yes. If you would ask me, or pro I think we would both agree on this, culturally, definitely he's opened the door for uh, conservatives to not be so ashamed of what they are, even though he's not one of them. But I don't think Marco Rubio would have done this. I don't think uh, even Senator Ted Cruz, I don't think uh, Chris Christie obviously would have gone after the media in the same way that Donald Trump has. Even, I think even though people may not like him, I think a lot of young people are happy to see the burdens, the shackles of political correctness kind of be thrown off, and he has helped pave the way. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, I was a bit surprised by all the negativity about Trump expressed by both Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro that I wasn't really aware of, who both generally support Trump. But I think they're getting a bit contradictory when suggesting that Trump has performed well as president and opened the door for conservatives to express themselves, yet describe him as being thoughtless. I mean, that's a contradiction. Especially since immediately following that assessment, they proceed to outline Trump's very correct thought process that has led Trump in the right direction. And my only comment regarding the rant of Laura Babcock on the preceding side of our bumper, you know, Trump hasn't matured, he just denies. The truth comes out eventually. That's not so. It might, but the truth rarely comes out. The truth usually comes out when someone denies the falsehood. The truth only emerges when the process to which Babcock objects is permitted to vet that truth. From everything I've seen, Trump is winning on the truth count, for those who are keeping score. But the left wouldn't know or care about a truth if it hit them on the head, which it does each and every day. 
to no avail. Now that's denial. The only thing we really learned, after all, from the New York Times op-ed and from the Washington panelists was that they all hate Donald Trump. Wow, cool, good for you. You know, we learned nothing about Donald Trump from any of them, except that they don't like him. It's, it's all about them. It's not about Trump. And this is the nature of the Trump derangement syndrome. So back on March 7th of this year, online commentator Stefan Molyneux offered an explanation that could very well describe the true root of the Trump derangement syndrome. Now Molyneux's somewhat libertarian, anarchistic, and deterministic views of people and politics certainly do not coincide with my own, but I thought he pretty much hit the nail on the head with the bottom line on this one. So why do people hate Donald Trump so much? What's happened is Trump wishes to restore market forces. I mean, I don't know how far he goes. I mean, Ayn Rand uh, is a favorite of his, and she's uh, very much into um, free market as, as far as it can go. I'm even further, but... So Trump wishes to restore, cut regulations, uh, open up the free market, and allow for job creation and so on. Now, what's happened, though, is we have less competent groups in society that are sustained by government redistribution of wealth. Now, this is not just the poor, although there's a lot of the poor. And when it comes to voting, it's the, it's the important block. You've got the single moms, you've got the welfare dependents, you've got the disabled or those who claim to be disabled. Uh, you have a wide range. You've got the old. Anyway, all people require and rely upon debt-driven resource transfers from well, from the future through debt and from more competent people and their children as collateral for that debt. So what happens? Mm. As the free market grows, these people realize deep down that the Pareto principle is going to allow for increased wealth disparity, which makes them look worse and makes other people look better. As job opportunities open up, they have fewer excuses to say, well, I can't work because the system doesn't work, there are no jobs and so on. And so while now they look hard done by because there's no labor, when labor begins to open up and jobs begin to open up and people want to hire them, then they start to be revealed as not just hard done by by the system, but as complicit in the continuation of their own poverty. So the reason why Donald Trump is hated is that people are concerned that the resource flow is going to diminish, that the resource flow from the government which initially they thought and felt was necessary for their survival. Now there's arguments that for a lot of them it may more or less practically be necessary for their survival. In the same way that the consumption of any drug, any hyperstimulating stimulating substance, initially breeds a positive result and then eventually all you're doing is staving off a negative. You know, you take a bunch of drugs and initially you're really happy and then eventually you end up hunting for food and resources and knocking over convenience stores because you just wish to avoid the agony of withdrawal. It's no longer the pursuit of a positive but the avoidance of a negative. It's the same thing with government redistribution of resources. So why is Donald Trump hated so much? He's hated to some degree because he's feared. And he's feared because the free market evokes in people the very, very deep fears and 
anxieties regarding resources. Donald Trump hasn't really talked about getting rid of any entitlement programs and so on, but we're just talking about the fear that things go in that direction. The fear is that the flow of resources from the state to the dependent classes, and this is not just the poor, again, military-industrial complex and lots of corporations rely on state protection, state monopolies and tariffs and taxes and regulations, and so it keeps that competition at bay. There's a whole variety of things that uh, bring uh, that come to bear on that stuff. But he's hated and feared because there is this terror that the free market is going to widen sexual market value and that the free market is going to progressively raise resentment among those who remain dependent upon the state when job opportunities abound. So they're worried and they're afraid that society is going to look and say, this has been terrible for people. And it has. I mean, the welfare state has just been terrible for people. Uh, it has destroyed families, it has destroyed communities, it has allowed for this massive experiment of multiculturalism to wend its slowly destructive and glass-breaking way through society, and um, people are nervous. Because, whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but I guarantee you that there's a millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people, maybe more, around the West, who do not know what their life could possibly look like in the absence of government money. They don't know. Now, Donald Trump, of course, the goal, I believe, is stimulate the free market and then slowly transition people to working rather than being dependent on the state, and maybe there's a way to have a soft landing to this, but that may require a lot more competence in the general population than it currently possesses, having been so propagandized by soft, gooey, leftism and uh, leftism in the schools and then Marxism in the universities. My attention was brought to the following September 14 commentary by Lawrence Solomon of the National Post. And as a past guest on this show, I am pleased to report that I very much do consider Lawrence Solomon to still be part of the true fourth estate and someone opposed to the false estate that we've been hearing from today. So I honestly can't think of any better way to wrap up today's show than to share his commentary with you. The headline, Trump isn't unpredictable. He's doing everything he said he would. Quote, U.S. President Donald Trump's critics, these days led by Anonymous, author of a New York Times op-ed, and Bob Woodward, author of a new Trump book, accuse him of being an erratic, unpredictable leader who inhabits an alternate universe that will destroy the economy end the Western Alliance and start World War III. What planet do these critics inhabit? There has never been a more predictable, more steadfast, or more constant president than Donald J. Trump. In public policy, he is the gold standard in staying the course. In trade, Trump said he'd get out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he did. He said he'd renegotiate NAFTA, and he's doing it. He said he'd impose tariffs on any country that didn't agree to his terms, and he has. In the economy, Trump said he'd cut taxes, and he did, in spades, with, his, with the first major tax reform bill in 30 years. He said he'd lower the unemployment rate, and it's now down to levels not seen in decades, while reaching historic lows for minorities. He said he'd bring back manufacturing plants, and they're coming back. And without the magic wand, former President Barack Obama mockingly said he'd need. He said he'd achieve 4% economic growth, 
and in the last quarter it reached 4.2%. He said he'd cut red tape, and he has. 860 regulatory actions have been scrapped or shelved since he became president, making him the biggest deregulator of all time. In foreign policy, Trump said he'd rebuild the military, and he's doing it through a massive funding bill he got through Congress. He said he'd recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and he has. He said he'd demolish ISIS, and he's doing it. He said he'd tear up the Iran nuclear deal, and he did. He said he'd quit the Paris Climate Accord, and he has. In domestic policy, Trump said he'd appoint conservative judges to the Supreme Court and lower courts, and he has, setting records for his number of appointments in the process. He said he'd approve the Keystone XL pipeline, and he did. He said he'd repeal and replace Obamacare, and he's doing it step by step. He said he'd repeal net neutrality, and he did. He said he'd work to get the black vote, and he has. The latest Rasmussen poll shows him with a 36% approval among likely black voters compared to the 8% who voted for him in 2016. In immigration, he said he'd impose a travel ban when he initially failed and he tried again and then again until finally the Supreme Court sided with him. He said he wanted to reduce the flow of illegal immigrants, and he initially did, and now that they've risen again, he's trying again. He said he'd build a wall on America's southern border, and though he's been mostly stymied to date, he's trying and trying again there too. Trump's predictability can best be seen by his formal record in keeping promises. By the end of the first year, according to the Heritage Foundation, he had kept a stunning 64% of the 334 promises made in his mandate for leadership pledge. Criticize him for his policies or his personality or his hair. That would be defensible. Criticize him for being unhinged and unpredictable in executing his policies, and you're the one who needs a checkup. In one sense, Trump is truly unpredictable. He thinks outside the box, making him unpredictable to those without imagination. Calling North Korean leader Kim Rocket Man one day and lavishing him with praise another isn't being unpredictable. It's keeping your eye on the ball, which is to get Kim to the negotiating table to achieve denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Trump's critics mistake his tactics, which are short-term and subject to change, for his strategy getting to the long-term deals that he's after. He'll threaten a country with tariffs, then zig with an offer to negotiate, then zag by threatening it with double tariffs, all with the ultimate end in mind. Or he'll publicly browbeat his military allies, threatening to end treaties, and using trade relations as leverage to convince them to contribute more to their own defense and to the common defense of the free world. These tactics may be diplomatic no-nos, but they succeeded, and in short order, in contrast to the decades of failure endured by Trump's White House predecessors. Trump isn't all over the map, and the sky isn't falling. Trump is a steady hand, always down to earth, and for anyone who cares to compare his promises with his results, he's highly predictable. End quote. Thank you, Lawrence, for telling it like it is. And telling it like it is, is what we will continue to do. And you are invited to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Mr. Grant? Uh, Could I speak to you for a minute? Sure, come on in.
Mr. Grant, the reason that I have been going over my budget is I have been offered a new job. job. It's over at WKS to produce a ladies' talk show called The Ladies' Ladies Talk Talk Show. Show. You knew. Well, the broadcasting industry in this town is like a big family. (laughs) Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. For example, Bob Freelander undoubtedly knows that this morning I went to our general manager and told him I wanted to give you a raise. Oh, Mr. Grant, that's just wonderful. It would have been, but he turned me down. (laughs) Now, before you get on the phone and try to tell Freelander that you'll take his job, let me give you a word of advice. Don't. Give me a good reason not to, please. Mary, it's cold out there. Everyone's jockeying for position, ready to cut each other's throat. Is that what you want? You guessed it, Mr. Grant. I want to go out there and scratch and claw for power. I'll stop at nothing in my ruthless fight for the top. Mary, it's dog-eat-dog in this business. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I thought you said the broadcasting business was like a big family. I didn't say it was a nice family. 